0: Namaste and good evening to all of you. It is my intention tonight in the satsang to speak about compassion, focusing on some of the beautiful words and teachings of the Buddha himself, who is one of the great originators of the concept of compassion, goodwill, and others. And um, looking to prepare to say a few words, looking at the words of the Buddha, I realized that compassion is not well defined, not well enough defined. Many people speak about compassion, but when going into the details of what it practically is, what it is from a spiritual, physical, emotional standpoint, Many people would not define it. We call the attention of the people pretty early in our yoga courses that the yogis from India who had a powerful feeling of compassion. Compassion is not only a Buddhist terminology. It exists very much in Hindu-Indian philosophy, metaphysics. That um, when talking about compassion... We, of course, say that compassion is not the mercy from the pity, the empathy, which comes from Anahata Chakra, and we define technically compassion as a harmonious blending of Anahata Chakra and Ajna Chakra, illustrated very beautifully in the essential posture known as Vajrasana, The diamond pose and where we ask people to meditate on the paradox that there is a mind in the heart like the heart can also be intelligent informed and that there is a heart in the mind that the mind although being intelligent uh, it can have a heart to it for example One concept which comes powerfully in the mind is that the mind always connects with a few other concepts, out of which a very important one is the concept of justice, of fairness. When you talk from the standpoint of love purely, then you don't necessarily take into consideration the aspect of fairness, or justice. Love or the mercy of God is supposed to manifest even when there is no fairness, even when there is no justice, as a sort of an overwhelming concept. On the other hand, if you look at justice, then where is the mercy into that? You can have compassion for a person who suffers for a mysterious cause, And you can have compassion for a person who suffers for something which they did. Like, for example, somebody who committed a serious offense or crime and is now in prison. And that person is worthy of compassion. But you cannot cancel the justice because you feel compassion for that person in case that person is, for example, the author of a heinous crime then automatically love and forgiveness from the heart and the justice, fairness, clarity, mindfulness from Ajna, they have to blend harmoniously. So there has to be a mind in the heart and there has to be a heart in the mind. Realizing that perhaps uh, in your mind, although we say this, in the teaching of Vajrasana, in the very first level of our Agama teachings. But realizing that there has never been a detailed comment on this, I decided tonight first to clarify a little bit what compassion involves and where does it separate from empathy and other such uh, processes which can be exist in the human being. And then, after defining it, um, going into the sayings of the Buddha, some of the statements which illustrate this spiritual path of compassion. We are going to see very much that compassion is a manifested virtue. It's a virtue of the mind and of the heart. It's a virtue of Prakriti, of the manifested universe, And therefore, in the presentation which I did one week ago, when I said that the spiritual life of a human being is made of artha, kama, dharma, moksha, many people, and especially in Buddhism, sometimes it is preached like compassion, is part of the path to nirvana. On the other hand, we see the opinion in Indian yoga That the compassion is more part of dharma, is more part of the religious morality, righteousness, than actually belonging to moksha itself. So let's analyze the components of it. I have taken a few scientific opinions, psychological opinions of it, which just help to make clarity in our minds so that we can have the proper discrimination. And then we will see how Buddha applies that in his spiritual path. Simplified saying, compassion is the response to the suffering of others that motivates a desire to help. It's a response to the suffering of the world, to the suffering of others, but it's not a pessimistic response. It's a response which motivates, creates a desire to help. If there is no desire to help, then there is no compassion. You are experiencing another state of consciousness. Compassion motivates people to go out of their way to help physical, spiritual, or emotional hurts or other pains of another person. Compassion is often regarded, again, uh, you are going to see that that is a general definition because when you involve into it fairness, intelligence, justice, uh, then there, the concept of compassion doesn't mean absolutely um, that action is possible. There is this silly joke in which um, some person, there's a kid that is crying. And he's crying in an ugly, provoking, like like really crying in a very nasty way. And the very concerned person, man, woman, doesn't matter, comes to the kid and says, Dear, what are you crying for? Are you hungry? Are you hurt in any way? Do you want something? Then why are you crying for God's sake? Just for the heck of it! Like, what is compassion in this state? No, When somebody does it, you know, it's like, I'm crying because I'm kind of possessed by the devil and I'm damned, you know? It's like, okay. no, It's like, actually, you don't want anything. There is nothing which I could give you or do for you which would alleviate your suffering. You are crying just because you want to make a scene just because you want to create some scandal, some fuss, some ado. The the real compassion in this situation goes into fairness, goes into like what's fair is fair, you know. If you want to do it, do it. Then compassion appears as detachment and almost like an indifference. Because So compassion does not absolutely mean that absurdly, like you are brainwashed, You actually have to do something. It's an intention, it's a motivation to do something. But that is when things can actually be done. And compassion is often uh, regarded as having an emotional aspect to it. And that's the part of Anahata Chakra. Though when based on cerebral notions such as fairness, justice, interdependence of phenomena... No, like you ate terrible things and now you suffer from cancer. There is a compassion, you know, but there is an interdependence on things. Like if you have been a torsionist in a concentration camp and you killed in agony hundreds of people, now you are complaining and we experience compassion towards you. But at the same time there is an interdependence of all things which cannot be stopped absurdly, just because of a subjective desire of mine, that, no, no, I'm supposed to have compassion. I'm supposed to have compassion, but it's not that compassion is almighty. Compassion, there are some things in front of which compassion, when related to fairness, to justice, it will stop. It may be considered rational in nature, and that's the part on Ajna Chakra, and its application understood as an activity, that is based on sound judgment as well. There is also an aspect of compassion mentioned in psychology, which is often given a property of depth, like how deep is your compassion, of vigor, how vigorous is your compassion, and of passion, like are you passionately compassionate, or are you coolly compassionate. No, there is a passion to it, so, the etymology of compassion is Latin, com, passion, together, passion, suffering, together. And it means co-suffering, therefore. And more involved, the simple empathy, compassion commonly gives rise to an active desire to alleviate another person's suffering. Empathy means that you feel. Oh, I feel that somebody is hungry or miserable or in pain. But where is the action concerning that? A few more concepts before I clarify and connect it with the yoga and with the chakras, so that then we can understand, from a yogic standpoint, the words of the Buddha. Compassion is often, although not inevitably, the key component it manifests in the social context as altruism. When a person is called an altruist, that person is usually motivated by compassion. In ethical terms, that's very important because it relates to yama and niyama, and you are going to see that there is a connection to yama and niyama. Yama and niyama are somehow the outcome of compassion. The expressions down the ages of the so-called golden rule in the 20th century, the Ethical people, they have boiled down all the religions and they discovered that all the ethics of the world is based on one single, all the yama and yama is ultimately boiled down to one so-called golden rule. And this often, this golden rule awful embodies by implication the principle of compassion. And in case you never heard what the essence of all ethics is, the golden rule says, do to others what you would have them do to you. It's very simple. Morality and ethics is very simple. Do to others only what you would have them do to you. If you want people to be indifferent about you, be indifferent about them. If you can take it. Everybody has to follow their own path. There are people who have different temperaments. There are people who want to live alone and to have a lot of space. Loners. Then you you ask people, leave me alone. I leave you alone, I want you to leave me alone. There are people who can live in this state of consciousness. There are people who, if they are left alone, they suffer tremendously because they are very much socially dependent. Then such a person doesn't want to leave people alone. Then I am the keeper of my brother. I am the one who is responsible of some of the things in this world. So compassion comes very close to this golden rule, Do to others only what you would have them do to you. In Hinduism, just to show you that in India, although it's basically a Buddhist concept, but it exists very much in the Vedas, in the Puranas, I'm just going to give you a few quotes from the Vedic tradition. In Hinduism, they use three words for compassion. Daya, Karuna, and Anukampa. Not the Anugraha or Kripa, which are words for mercy, for the love, for the mercy which comes from anahata alone or from love as a process. It's compassion, yeah? It's a different, it's a complex phenomenon. And in the Padma Purana, which is one of the Puranas of the tradition, Daya, as compassion, is defined as the virtuous desire to mitigate the sorrow and difficulties of others by putting forth whatever effort is necessary. So, Padma Purana considers it a virtue. It's a religious thing. It's a virtue, which means it belongs to Dharma, part of life. Remember that Moksha or Mukti, the enlightenment, is another part of life. Many people connect it. They say you cannot have Moksha unless you have compassion. That actually is not true. Remember that in Shambhala or in the divine hierarchies, there are cosmic powers like gods and goddesses and there are angels and archangels and seraphim and cherubim which look at people going to prison, going to hell, dying and it happens like if two people are born every second, two people die every second. Happens all the time. And there are cosmic powers which look upon that with compassion. But compassion doesn't mean that they have to stop it. Death itself is an act of compassion. If you and anybody on this world would not die, in a million years you would be in a permanent state of hell. You would be the most unhappy, fulfilled, trapped in this body Trapped in this limited human condition. So, death is an act of compassion when you look at it from the standpoint of Kali. But very few people have the level of consciousness of Kali where they can look at people dying and it's actually an act of compassion, essentially speaking. That's why this is a complex field. In the Matsya Purana, another of the Puranas, Dasa Daya, I'm sorry, is described as the virtue that treats all living beings and especially human beings as one's own self, wanting the welfare and good of the other living beings. Remember that in most religions, although compassion seems to apply to everything which is alive in the universe, nevertheless. It manifests specially to the human beings. Ramakrishna Paramahamsa said very clearly, on the planet Earth, the living DNA structure which represents God most is the human being. So he said if you can't see God in human beings, then you can't see God into anything else. It is twisted to hear some people complaining that human beings are terrible, but dogs are nice. This is twisted and disharmonious because God is more manifested in a human being than in a dog. We can use hippie, we are all one type of nonsense statement in which we practice a sort of two-penny metaphysics, a cheap metaphysics, And in which we say, oh, but everything is God and so on. But for Ramakrishna and other great ones, there are degrees of manifestation. And God is manifested in the crystalline structure of a crystal or of a rock. But also manifested in the human beings. And human beings become like Rumi and like Milarepa. And they populate Shambhala and crystals and... Horses, if you don't like dogs let let's call them horses or camels, they don't, therefore, um, remember that it refers to the human being, there is a logic to it when mercy and this is blind, then you can say, "I love dogs more than people because dogs are adorable. When you have proper compassion it's there is a order, there is a hierarchy. Of this, no, it always addresses mostly to the human being. Daya or compassion is mentioned clearly that it's not the same thing as kripa or the pity, the mercy which comes from Anahata. In Hinduism, feeling sorry for the sufferer, because when you feel sorry for the sufferer, this feeling is marred with condescension. You are condescending. You're condescending towards it. Compassion is feeling one with the sufferer. That's a huge difference. That's why there are people who have mercy for some. And for example, there is a lot of mercy or love advised in Christianity. And almost nobody seems to involve vegetarianism because of it. Because although you may have mercy... There is not a feeling of oneness. That makes a huge difference. Hindus also call compassion karuna, which is another word. and means, It means, it's interesting to see the words because each one of them means a different thing and shows us a different side of it. Karuna means placing one's mind in another one's favor. Therefore, seeking to understand the other from their own perspective. From there, when you put yourself in the shoes of another person, then you understand. Then you can have compassion because it's an act of the mind. And the term anukampa, which is a third word used often for compassion, is refers to one state after one has observed and understood the pain and suffering of others. So they are all different facets of illustrating it. I will just conclude by saying that compassion is the basis for ahimsa non-violence comes from compassion which is one of the core virtues in Hindu philosophy and of course pe- most people know it more from buddhism which where it contains a lot of goodwill on manipura some of the love of anahata the fairness the mindfulness the justice of manipura and ajna as well and um, to conclude this introduction to the words of the Buddha, I'm just going to say that uh, what Dala, the 14th Dalai Lama has said at some point. He said, if you want those around you to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. That's, it's as simple as that. So those who are in the pursuit, in the legitimate pursuit of happiness... They should look into compassion. Again, you can reach moksha, you can go out of the chain of samsara, but living in this world, it also involves artha, kama, dharma, and in dharma, the capital, one of the capital values is precisely living with compassion. Let me tell you a few of the teachings of the Gautama Buddha himself. To see, to, to meditate, to muse a little bit together on how this applies. The purpose of this satsang is just to make you think like how much compassion do you apply in your existence? The less relationship with the world and with the others you have, the less you care about compassion. But the more you interact with people around you. The more it becomes a matter of compassion. Compassion is a factor. And especially when you do karma yoga, which is one of the great values of yoga, and especially in the tantric relationships, which are a very intensive way of interacting with each other, compassion therefore becomes very, very relevant says Buddha in a place, and this is an early echo of what later became the Bodhisattva vow. The Bodhisattva vow is nothing else but the manifestation of the words of the Buddha on compassion. Buddha says in one of the sutras, I look for no recompense, for no reward, not even to be reborn in heaven. For many people... Christianity, for example, gives two levels of spiritual realization. One of them is called salvation, and the other one is called perfection. And they are not the same thing. Salvation means that in the end of this life, you reach a level of consciousness minimally at the level of Anahata chakra, and then when the cosmic cycle is over, you go in the kingdom of heaven which means in a high paradise, and it's a sort of like a graduation, you graduate this manvantara, you graduate this Yuga. It's like the plan for it is that humanity should go below I'm sorry, beyond above, anahata chakra. And then that's called salvation. If you don't reach salvation, you have to go back into the cycle exactly as a pupil, who has to repeat class, because he didn't get marks good enough to graduate. So, salvation is a step forward, but perfection is to go to the top. Perfection is much bigger than salvation. Those that are saved are not necessarily perfect, but those that are perfect are also saved. Of course, The word perfection is uh, psychologically very unstable. But what I'm trying to say is, uh, here you see the lucidity of the Buddha, how he formulates it. He says, I look for no reward, not even to be reborn in heaven. Most Christians want to be reborn in heaven. And according to Jesus and according to the Christian mystics, It's not so bad. It's not that bad. It's a great accomplishment. So you can say, may I at least reach salvation in the end of this life, in the end of this cosmic cycle. That's like the first milestone. It's the first thing to be accomplished. But Buddha says there is a higher position in which I'm not even looking to be reborn in heaven. Even being reborn in heaven is a procrastination. It means I will go to heaven and then the process of evolution, the process of becoming, which he had generically called samsara, will not stop. When you are in heaven, there is a samsara for those in heaven. It's much more mild, it's much more pleasant, it's (coughs) much more elevated. You don't get to be confronted with inferior, terrible things. You consumed those already. But, in a big picture, it's still a refined form of samsara. So Buddha, he's radical. He says, I'm going for the 100% thing. It's black and white for me. He says, I don't just want to be reborn in heaven. I am doing what I do for no reward. He says, but I seek the welfare of man to bring back those that have gone astray, to enlighten those that live in the night of error, to banish all pain and all suffering from the world. This is the noble thought which leads to the Bodhisattva vow when you take a vow to do exactly this. Even if I am not reborn in heaven, That's my dharma. My dharma is to bring back those that have gone astray. Many demons, people living in hell, egoism, ignorance. To enlighten those that live in the night of error. Ignorance is the worst of the punishments. To banish all pain and all suffering from the world. Of course, everybody realizes that that is an endless task, because if souls are created every second, if there is like an artesian well, like there is like a geyser made of souls, and from the non-manifestation souls appear, creating matter by the supernovas and the quasars of the universe, whatever you know, I'm, I can use an astronomical simile, in the same way. There will always be, in this millennium, some souls which cross from orangutans to human beings. Which simply means very, very primitive human beings. When they are born in a human body, they look like you and I. But inside, the soul which inhabits that person, just hundred years ago, was an orangutan. That automatically means that in the moment when an Urangutan gets reason, freedom, free choice, like I can get drunk or not, I can do this or not, it's normal to assume that a spirit that is like an unpolished diamond, there is a diamond in, say, inside that spirit, which is Atman, but that Atman is like an unpolished diamond. It has to go through a lot of polishing, and then it's normal to assume, it's expected that certain human beings who are very unevolved, they will commit a lot of errors. It's almost inevitable that people, by trial and error, they will, have, they will do mistakes. We all do mistakes, and we all learn from our mistakes. Some people need to do the same mistake hundreds of times over until they realize, okay, I shall not do it anymore. No, So sooner or later, but we all do mistakes. We all learn from mistakes. And you can expect that souls that have not too much experience, they have to do their mistakes. They have to have their mistakes. And if every year baboons are becoming human beings, then when will Buddha stop? When will there be a time to banish all the pain and suffering and to enlighten those who live in error? Never. Never. It's forever and ever. It's a process which goes where you say, I shall do this until all the souls are enlightened. When will that happen? There's always a baboon which is lagging behind. Compassion simply says, therefore, that it never stops, it will never stop. And that's the true meaning of it. It means an existential condition of living in compassion it's very it's a very noble thought that I don't even want to be reborn in heaven as no reward I'm awaiting for. The only thing which matters is. That some people are acting in this anti-entropy way. There are people who are going down, falling asleep because of the entropy. And then there are people like the spirits of Shambhala, which like put electricity in your hearts and souls. And they tell you telepathically and energetically, don't fall asleep. Wake up. Stand up. Come up. Come to the light come out of ignorance, of errors, and all that. So this is the spirit of the Buddha to create this positive effect. Another saying of the Buddha, which I collected here, is that he is quoted saying, not for the sake of my own well-being, I practice universal benevolence. Benevolence is another way of saying loving-kindness. In Buddhism, they start with this benevolence at the level of Manipura, because especially in Asia, many people are very Manipuristic. And then, you know, there are people who claimed that in Japanese language, I've seen it written in at least two places in the medieval time, there was not even a word for love. Love, in the way Farangs understand love, did not exist in the Japanese dictionary. They replaced it with Hombun or others. Duty, loyal, like your love means that you are loyal. Your love means that you do your duty. Your love means other things. That's what love meant for them in their culture. And that's why the Buddhist tradition adapted itself very much to the Asian spirit. And realize that for many people, this so-called love is not an empathy which comes from the heart. And I see you limping of one leg and then I start shedding tears. That how bitter there must be for you. It comes from Manipura. It's a benevolence. And many people don't understand it. It's mixed a lot. You see it in some Buddhist Asian environment. And people think, "How oh, what a great Anahata these people have. But then when you live with them for five years you see that most of what they do has nothing to do with Anahata. Most of their daily life and philosophy is Manipura, Ajna, some other things. For example, in the story of Milarepa, actually I'm quoting a parallel story of Milarepa but it doesn't matter. In the story of Milarepa, Milarepa when he gets to a monastery and to an initiation, He tells them his sad story, that these people killed his father, threw his mother out of the house to become a beggar. His sister was also... Like they destroyed his family. They confiscated his land and so on. And he says, and when I told this story, there was not one person in the room who did not shed tears. Like all those tough Buddhist monks from Tibet, they heard this story of woe. And then they shed tears. Oh my God, so terrible it was for you. But please watch Chinese, Japanese movies. And you will see that there people also cry. And sometimes out of sorrow. When somebody is in trouble. But that cry has nothing to do with Anahata. It's another way of crying. It's coming from Manipura. And it's a way in which a soldier cries for another soldier. In almost all the military movies, We Were Soldiers or whatever other series and movies are, there are this pathetic scene where the time cuts, a very romantic tear, heart tearing music is starting and the soldier in the middle of bullets and battle, he holds his dying comrade and his comrade dies in a very exotic way and so on. That music, that feeling is not on Anahata. In most of the soldier movies, in most of the heroic movies, it's a pain on Manipura. It's called pathos. That's where it comes, empathy, empathos. It's a a feeling, it's a military pathos where the comrade decries his fallen comrade in a Manipuristic way. And it's a sort of like we were together what if this would have happened to me? You are a hero, you know, and all that stuff. It's not anahata. Anahata has another range of feelings, which only those who work on anahata experience. So that's why very often in Buddhism it oscillates between compassion and benevolence. It's not that there are not people with air energy. Even in Asia, if you find a person that is a triple air sign astrologically, that person will be full of air energy and therefore having tendencies towards Anahata. But it's not specific to the whole culture and to the whole environment. So he says, not for the sake of my own well-being. Well-being, my own well-being. It's a concept on Manipura. I practice universal benevolence, or what other people call loving kindness. Many people think that this loving kindness shows you have a good heart. In Thailand itself, if you are a kind person, generous, many Thais do a sort of a samyama with people, it was told to me by people having lived many, many years in Thailand. They say when you get to know them privately outside of the tourist circuit, when you live in a Thai village where they speak only Thai, sometimes people who don't know you, they come and just sit beside you, like they are resting on a bench in a park or something. They don't even look too much at you. And they stay like this for 5-10 minutes, doing a sort of telepathic identification. And then suddenly they clap you on the shoulder and you say, you have a good heart. You are a good person. It's something which is not in yoga. It's something which is in the folklore. But that good heart, because I personally have been told by some people, Swami, you have a good heart. Thai people and so on. It was always after being generous, kind, after doing nice things on Manipura. Not nice things on Anahata. So very many people mix this up, because in Asia, to have a good heart, it means to be like a benign king, to have goodwill, loving kindness, generosity, and other harmonious features on Manipura, which are not less important, not at all, Because Manipura is a chakra which is much, much more present on planet Earth and in the human communities than Anahata. Anahata is a little bit utopian. Jesus wanted Anahata, Anahata, heart, heart, heart. But when we look at the European culture where Christianity has ruled for 2,000 years or something, we see still a lot of Manipura, a lot of Swadistana. Like How much anahata has there appeared in so many of those cultures? That's why, get used to it, because when Buddha talks about it, he also brings the concept of a harmonious manipura, which for me is very important, because if you have a good anahata, but your manipura is a mess, you will probably be more hours per day in your manipura, than in your Anahata. And then the fact that you have a loving heart, but when you are in Manipura, which means most of the time, you are disharmonious and messy, then actually your life is a disharmony and a mess. And it's a pity that you had some potential in Anahata, and you could have been a loving person. Unfortunately, it's a city in China. You live most of the time, in a totally other chakra of your being. So he says, it's not for the sake of my own well-being that I practice universal benevolence. But I love benevolence because it is my desire to contribute to the happiness of living beings. When the Christian monks in the Orthodox Eastern Church, they decided to bring together all the relevant writings about how to practice Christian spirituality in an ascetic environment, like in a monastery. They created a collection, which is of about 12 volumes, which was first edited in the Greek language, so it is known by its Greek name. They called it the Philokalia. And Philokalia means love of goodness, love of benevolence love like some people love this concept that they look around and they say i wish everybody would be benevolent kind it's this concept is very very important and i cannot emphasize enough on this we see all the time that many people actually Do not love benevolence. Philokalia of the Christian path is to love benevolence, to love like before everything else, to have this thing that you know I love benevolence. I, I wish to have the Jesus ideal there will come a day when the lion will lie together with the lamb and there shall be no more killing. It sounds more utopian than ever. The 20th century was the most murder-laden century in the history of mankind, and the 21st century didn't start well at all. So it's already competing with the 20th century in in terms of how much war and murder and lack of benevolence exist in the world. Although we call ourselves more advanced, advancing in civilization, actually when you look at the results, you see the opposite. And that's why it's very important to understand that a compassionate mind, it means this love for benevolence. Like to see a society where these dark things, nobody wants them really in that way. Philokalia, you know, I'm in, I'm in love, I love goodness. I want to surround myself with good people. You know, I would like to live on an island with ten people, if there are no more than ten left in the world today, and those ten people, they shall never, never, ever, in any way, be assholes to anybody else on that island. Is it possible to have the lion lying with a lamb? Like, is it possible to have at least a group of human beings who lives in this agape, that you never have to keep your guards up? No, you can lower your guard. There is nothing to guard yourself. You, there is the philokalia. There is the love of the kindliness, of the goodness. This is... An important value. I value it more and more as the years are passing. I value this more and more. And Buddha is quoted saying again, whatsoever may be the cause of your suffering, do not wound another. You know that wounded animals are the most dangerous because they tend to cause mayhem and harm but human beings are supposed not to be animals like and not to react in a primary way therefore there is even the british proverb which says that the character of people is known in suffering or in not in positive circumstances but in negative circumstances because the problem is, and we see it happening all the time, that as soon as things get shitty for people, whichever way, relationship, sex, money, something, health, then people start hurting other people. They never want to go down alone. They want to take other people down with them. If I suffer, you should go to hell also. This is, like you can understand that a a tiger or a wounded animal does that. In the case of human beings, it's supposed to be reflected in consciousness. And in adversity, we know the character of people. When the circumstances are nice, everybody smiles and claims to be nice. When things are going really bad, that's when you see... What friends are made of and what people are made of. Says Buddha again Whoso hurts and harms living creatures, destitute of sympathy for any living thing, let him be known as an outcast. Buddha also doesn't want to surround himself, like he says, an outcast, you know, let them live in the outer circle. I don't want them in here with me. He mentions sympathy. Sympathy is another value of Manipura. Again, very important. No? Like, I don't know if I feel love for that person or for that person. But I'm sympathetic with the cause. I sympathize with this person or with that cause. Sympathy is, again, more like, if I would be a king, I would grant you a favor. I'm sympathetic with your thing. No, and it's not something coming from the heart again. So he uses a language which is very clear from a psychological yogic standpoint. More statements about compassion which show us the position of Buddha and how he created this environment. Goodwill, goodwill, will, will is Manipura, goodwill a good manipura, goodwill towards all beings is the true religion. Cherish in your heart, in your heart, not like in your heart chakra, in your heart, like in your core, in the in, inner essence of your being. Cherish in your heart boundless goodwill to all that lives. Don't forget that ultimately all that lives lives by a decree from the divine consciousness. Life has not been created by I and you. Life is a mystery until today, and it appears, mystically speaking, that life is the will of God. That the divine consciousness, either you like it or not, either you understand it or not, the divine consciousness creates life. And therefore, who is, who am I to stop it? Put an end to it. And thus, that's why most religions go against suicide. They consider that suicide is a severe misunderstanding of the message of the divine consciousness. It's going against it. And also, uh, all this goodwill to all that lives. I could expand so much more on it because, again, I'm saying. The life, we cannot understand it or justify it. It is said in popular religion that you shall not take life if you cannot give life. There is the provocative story of Mahasida Tilopa, the first guru of a very, very powerful lineage, the most powerful lineage of Tibetan yoga, who amounted to Milarepa. The fourth in that lineage was Milarepa himself. And Tilopa, who was the first and the spiritual genius, was described, the beginnings of his career are described in which he is a very, very, very realized human being. And he is eating fish in the yard of a Buddhist monastery somewhere in India, on the Indian side of the Himalayas. And then he is scolded. Somebody tells him, there is an idiot who came and is eating fish. In those days, the Buddhists tended to be more vegetarian, especially in India, where vegetarian is, is a tradition. So the, the abbot comes and scolds Tilopa. And he says, not only that you are killing fish and eating them, that's your karma, it's your problem. I feel sorry for you, but ultimately it's your choice. You will see where that will take you. But you came to do that in a Buddhist monastery. That's like you are rubbing it in our face. You know, what do you want to provoke us? Why can't you just go outside of the monastery and eat your blasted fish? And then Tilopa, because there was a point in this, Tilopa starts laughing scornfully and he clicks his fingers and the bones of the fish fly in the air. They become incarnated again, like the fish becomes whole again. He materializes the fishes. And then they start flapping through the air, being alive again. And then they fly somewhere. They disappear. The, the morals of this story of tilopa, either it is literally true or not, is this. If you can make the bones turn into fishes, then you can also eat them. It's not a big problem. No, because you are beyond life and death as a forbidden. You have gone beyond that. But otherwise, then this morality of the Buddha that to cherish in your heart goodwill towards all that lives. How does that apply when you get flea or lice on your body? That's also something which lives. How do you have goodwill towards what lives? I remember my first spiritual teacher. I had become a fanatic ahimsa practitioner. And then I've seen my first spiritual teacher who was like 90 years old. He swatted a fly or a mosquito with a fly swat. And I was like, my jaw dropped. And I said, you are killing mosquitoes. And he said, he looked at me like I was an alien. He could see that I was a fanatic young man, you know, and so on. And he said, yes. He said, and I at the same time, I give them a blessing that they should go forth in their reincarnation into a better birth. They should be born more than mosquito. They should like I'm pushing them forward. You can say that's just an excuse of a twisted, perverted old man to defend his habit or whatever. But I read it in the Indian scriptures, the king's. In the old Vedic times, where they were strictly vegetarian, the kings were doing ashvamedha, the sacrifice of the horse. Only kings were allowed to do it, because it was not a common act. And the ashvamedha was a fire ceremony, a a yagya, one of these sacrifices of the Vedic people, and in which they killed a horse. They offered a horse to the Vedic gods. And people would say, what? In the Vedic religion, they would kill a horse and they do killing of goats in Bengal, still nowadays for Kali. And how does that, how can that be? But in the Vedic rites, it said the Brahmins, the Vedic priests were saying prayers in which they thanked the horse because he sacrificed himself for the cause of the king and they blessed it with mantras. That because he is dying for such a noble cause, he should be reborn, perhaps, as a human being in the next life. Which changes the perspective, you know. Then, if you accelerate the evolution of the horse, it may be biologically momentarily scary or painful. But in the big picture, it's like, okay, now, because you help us, we bless you. We push you with mantras that you should be reborn as a human soul, as a human being. It's a great step forward in evolution. Maybe the soul of the horse is happy to serve into an Ashvamedha. So this story of compassion is, of course, very great in this way because you can say that you have boundless goodwill to all that lives, but then you swat a mosquito... And you tell it, may you become a fish or a mouse or something, you know? Like, may you go ahead in your evolution. Then that changes the perspective of things. Because it's not something which is done out of hate, out of destruction. Very much, it matters what we do. The human being is a sort of a demigod. The human being is a creator. Because the human being has free will and consciousness and is potentially a Buddha and thus uh, for the human being the choices are different than in the animal world. Nobody will condemn a lion because it kills a gazelle. The lion is built to kill gazelles and that's the law of Prakriti, that's the law of Mother Nature. You cannot say that the lion accumulates negative karma because it kills a gazelle. It cannot start chewing grass. Lions don't have the organs to eat grass or carrots. (laughs) They have to eat gazelles. That's how their digestive tract is built from one end to the other. Thus, we have to understand this because we are talking about compassion. And compassion is intelligent. It also contains in it mindfulness, justice, justice fairness, and all the great concepts of the mind. Another saying of Buddha, another statement of the Buddha says, the distinctive signs of true religion are goodwill, love, truthfulness, purity, nobility of feeling, and kindness. It's good to meditate on this sutra because you can always ask yourselves, is my religion a sincere religion or am i a hypocrite who performs lip service buddha says the distinctive sign of true religion signs of true religion are goodwill do are you a person with a lot of goodwill do you give goodwill around you love truthfulness Purity, nobility of feelings. Do you have noble feelings or are you (laughs) petty? Are you a petty person or do you have nobility of feelings? And kindness, kindness. And he keeps on saying, all beings long for happiness. Therefore, extend your compassion to all. It's like that article of the American Constitution which says that all people are in the pursuit of happiness. Swami Ram, the guru of the guru of Swami Lakshmanji, he said, even if you try to squash a worm, the worm will wriggle and try to escape and disappear, hide itself, because the worm cherishes its own life. How does the worm... Imagine how primitive the nervous system of a worm is. We call it instinct of conservation. But how does the worm think that it says, no, I should not die, I should live? Why does the worm feel I should live? Instead of saying, okay, let them squash me, who cares? No. Why does the, a primitive mind, which doesn't even have primitive emotions, Why does a worm love itself, cherishes its own life? This is as profound as compassion goes. All beings long for happiness, even a worm. Therefore, extend your compassion to all. It is possible that it's impossible for you to live with lice on your body. And then you have to detox yourself and you are going to kill a lot of lice in the process. Because there are some laws of the manifestation. There are some rules of engagement in which you are allowed to have your own space. Even the bees, if a foreign insect or animal enters in a bee house, they kill it immediately and they cover it with wax. They isolate it immediately. It's the law of nature. If you are stupid enough to enter into a bee house, you die. So, if a a louse is stupid enough to sit on my body, it dies. There are rules of engagement which allow us to do that. But it's a difference between the rules of engagement which are by laws of nature and other things such as killing gratuitously and not having compassion to the nature. You can say, oh, the lion should not kill the gazelle. Then you condemn the lion to death. I'm going to give to the lion some food. But that food is going to come from a slaughterhouse. From Instead of killing gazelles, you are giving it cows that are killed in a slaughterhouse. And just because you don't see the cows being killed, it's the same thing. You know, you think it's better. There are many people who act in this primitive way. They say, oh, I don't give meat. I don't do this. But I'm giving some. Where does that food come from? It's exactly like the modern mania with electric cars. I am an engineer in electronics as education, and I know electric cars, until today, they consume about four times more resources than a normal car. Because people just plug it and they say it's clean. But that electricity which you get to charge up that car to make 100 kilometers, has produced about four times more pollution than if you just burned gasoline in your car. Because the efficiency of the electric accumulators and such installations is pathetic. And therefore, today, all this electric car industry is just a response to ignorant hippies and yuppies and whatever they are, hysterical people who think that if it's clean, if you put it in a plug, it means you are saving the planet. With electric cars, you are condemning it more because the efficiency of storing electricity in an accumulator and then taking it out of the accumulator and spinning an engine is about four times smaller than burning gasoline. It's pathetically low. It's one of the lowest things existing in technology today. So, it's exactly the same. Because you don't see the smoke coming of your car, you think you save the planet. But the smoke is just somewhere else. That's the only thing which it is. And it's more than what your car would produce. That's the sad truth about all this. But you don't hear anybody saying it, because there is a collective hysteria about it. Then people don't want to stand against the collective hysteria. You can even make money from the collective hysteria if you align yourself with, say, yes, yeah, you are right, it's so nice that you are a, a person who cares about these things. So, extending your compassion to all is a great thought and it has to account. Or the rules of engagement which exist in this world. Another thought which was said by Buddha, and it is carried often today, Buddha says hatreds never cease by hatred, by love alone they cease. This is an ancient law. Again, you know it all. Even in modern world, we try to solve things with a tooth for a tooth and an eye for an eye. We try most of the nations, practice retaliation, revenge, war, military power, hatred. But it doesn't work that way, says the Buddha, again, on this path of compassion. A few more thoughts, just to get ourselves impregnated by this wonderful environment created by the Buddha, where he says... Forbearing patience is the highest asceticism. Nirvana is supreme, as the Buddhas say, for he is not a recluse who harms another, nor he is an ascetic who molests others. He says, forbearing patience is the highest asceticism. Remember this because many of you ...are heroic souls and you come to me periodically asking me what tapas should I take? What should be my greatest effort? Here is an answer from Buddha. Buddha says the greatest tapas that you can do is called forbearing patience. Forbear, endure and patience. Almost nobody has patience. That's one of the things which I have seen in spirituality. It is as I read in a Japanese book many, many years ago, where somebody was teaching about principles of wisdom, and he said a sentence which went like a sutra in my mind. He said, Patience is the beginning of wisdom. Like you can't even hope to be wise if you have no patience. Patience. I remember having seen an interview with a highly acclaimed Christian mystic who apparently had reached some of the highest states in meditation and prayer. And he was asked by somebody, would you have a advice to give to people watching you on camera. A very wild man, very like he didn't like to be filmed and very reclusive, real hermit. And I have met him personally a couple of times and in my opinion, he was super authentic. He was the real deal. And somebody is asking me, can you give an advice on camera for like, And he addressed like he was talking to monks, to other monks. And he said, I will not give you. I'll give you the advice which my confessor, my advisor, gave to me when I was young. And he said, we were three young men, and we had to take goodbye from this old man who had been our guide, our confessor. And then we asked him, do you have any last word to give to us? And this old man told them, Patience, 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 patience. And when you feel that you are done, then start all over from the beginning patience, 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 patience. And then this guy who was talking, and who was an arius, a very fiery, impulsive. Now he was old and wise. He had reached to the wisdom. But uh, then he said, I was young in those days. And I asked the old man, but father, patience until when? And the old man gave him an answer which I cannot even translate in English. Because it was expressed in a rural Romanian language, so it's very, very difficult to translate. But it basically said, patience, not until the tiling, the tiling of the ground, like when you tile vegetables in the garden, which is done in the summer, in June or something. So he said, patience, not until the time of tiling or plowing, or, but until the end. So he said, patience till the last day of your life. If I have to tell you one word, he said, that is patience, 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 not until the plowing time, until the end. Like a patience without end, a patience till the last. Here, Buddha confirms it, where he says, forbearing patience is the highest asceticism. It's better than fasting. It's better than 30 udyanabandas per day. It's better. Forbearing patience. Endure it. Endure it till the end. That is why Buddha Shows, when you confront it with the different meridians of spirituality, Buddha shows true wisdom. He knows what the spiritual path is made of. Without patience, nothing exists. In spirituality, nobody has reached anything without patience. Ramana Maharishi reached the state of Samadhi at 17 years old, without any visible preparation in yoga in this lifetime. And then he went to Tiruvannamalai and he lingered in the basements of the temples and other unknown places meditating. Although he had reached enlightenment, he meditated for another 20 years. Only when he was 30 something, people started noticing that this young man had become a great master. Like he had patience for 20 years and then he had more patience, even from there on. Thus, this is one of the very great lessons which is associated with compassion. If there is no patience, there is no compassion. Compassion cannot go without patience. Some people are trying to solve everything now, quickly. Some things, of course, they have their emergency. You know, somebody has a heart attack, you take them to the hospital. Now, not with patience. Have patience. Next week, I'll tell you to the. Uh, it's not an absurd patience applied in unrealistic things, it's an internal condition. Forbearing patience. Like Buddha himself was persecuted by some kings. Local kings didn't like Buddha. Because he had too much authority and people listened to him too much. And he was pissing them off. He was like competition to their royal authority. And Buddha never lost his patience. He never said, oh, no, god damn it. You know, all these assholes who don't understand. I'm surrounded by morons, you know. When will this be over? And so he must have been annoyed as an enlightened being that had noble feelings and others... He must have been annoyed by a bunch of egocentric idiots who were all the time trying to nag him. But when you read the life story of Buddha, you see also this patience. He was doing what he was preaching. He was what he said he was. That's why that's one of the biggest things I've seen many people falling off the path of yoga or spirituality, because of lack of patience, lack of patience. You lose your patience, you lose your wisdom, you lose a lot of things. Says Buddha again, by inflicting pain on others, he who wishes his own happiness is not released from hatred, being himself entangled in the tangles of hatred. That's why he basically preaches the same. I would like to finish these statements about compassion before we conclude. And um, he says the same thing, that you cannot stop hatred by adding more hatred to it. Things have to be done with compassion. Again, compassion can mean many things. One of my spiritual teachers, whom until today I consider as one of the most morally accomplished persons that I have met in my life. I also had teachers who were morally questionable, but this one was one of the most morally perfected persons that I've seen in my life. And I've seen him swatting a fly, swatting a mosquito. So there, of course, it can be done without hatred. It's not about hatred, right? There is a habitat. You have a habitat and every being on the face of this earth is allowed to have a habitat of their own, have your own space. Therefore, when a flay or a louse is coming and living on your body, they are infringing on your habitat. Then there is a dharma. There is a dharmic effect. There is a dharmic Principle which allows you, without hate, to maintain your space according to the laws of nature. As a mother, says Buddha, even at the risk of her life, protects her son, her only son, so let him who has recognized the truth cultivate goodwill among all beings without measure. Goodwill. Goodwill among all beings, without measure. Again, you, know, you have to think about it in terms of the existence of the society itself. You know? If you have a pedophile rapist living in your community, there must exist goodwill, but it doesn't mean that the community must bend over and take it. Because there is a habitat. The community has a habitat. And if a dangerous animal enters in a habitat and endangers the lives of your children or of the defenseless one, the animal has either to be chased away or it has to be put away. It has to be taken out. That's why understand in with the proper nuances what Buddha is is saying because buddha did not forbid the rules of the society from existing he mentions about the principle in the heart on the other hand i see many people who say that they have recognized the truth and therefore that they are spiritual practitioners and those spiritual practitioners they do not cultivate goodwill therefore meditate The charitable man, says Buddha, is loved by all. His friendship is praised highly. In death, his heart is at rest and full of joy, for he does not suffer from repentance. He says a very important thing here, which I'll come back to. He receives the opening flower of his reward and the fruit that ripens from him. So he extols charity, and the beautiful things resulting from it. He says, in death, his heart is at rest and full of joy, which is super important. For those of you who studied the art of dying here with Agama, you understand exactly what I'm saying. For he does not suffer from repentance. There is no reason to condemn yourself. And in the moment when you don't condemn yourself, The divine consciousness does not. People say, what if we have a shameless murderer, a person that is a terrible sinner, and then he dies and he says, yeah, guess what, I don't condemn myself. So nobody should, nothing should. That's not going to happen. Because the person who has this kind of shamelessness can manifest this shamelessness only in the conscious mind. And in the subconscious mind, The tune is totally different. So this person just tries to cover the shit by pretending, I don't care, see if I care. When you die, the doors are opening and then suddenly you have the other tune and then you say, oops. And then your subconscious mind condemns you, sends you to hell. Hell is a personal thing. Your own, those of you who did the level two in Agama, read it in the laws of the mind that the mind is the one which condemns us or absolves us. Beyond the divine nature of Atman, of pure consciousness, the greatest power in this universe is the mind. And therefore, the mind, in the realm of the lokas, of the planes of this universe, the mind has the utmost power. The mind can absolve you or the mind can condemn you. Buddha says, if you are a person of goodwill, you will die the right way. It's much more easy to die clean and not to condemn yourself at the time of death when the subconscious mind bubbles over, takes over, bursts over, and then you might discover a side of you. Which you thought you had covered, but it's never been covered, it's always there. Hard it is to understand. By giving away our food, we get more strength. By bestowing clothing on others, we gain more beauty. By founding abodes of purity and truth, we acquire great treasures. He mentions now charity and compassion in doing dana in doing in donating and in doing service just as the vigorous warrior goes to battle so is the man who is able to give he compares to battle to the spirit of battle loving and compassionate he gives with reverence and banishes all hatred envy and anger and the last three ideas from Buddha's talk. The charitable man has found the path of liberation. He is like the man who plants a sapling, securing thereby the shade, the flowers and the fruit in future years. Even so is the result of charity. Even so is the joy of him who helps those that are in need of assistance. Even so is the great Nirvana. As you can see, Buddha sees a continuity between loving-kindness and compassion and reaching to nirvana. Remember that every religion gives you a path. It's like you are entering through a certain door or window into the central hub of the divine consciousness. Not everybody enters through the same window. One goes with compassion, another one goes with love, There are different virtues which are used to conduct to the Supreme. But Buddha extols compassion beyond everything. The immortal, the last but one, the immortal can be reached only by continuous acts of kindness and perfection is accomplished by compassion and charity. And he concludes by saying that which is most needed is a loving Now, concluding this, which is, of course, a meditation about how does it apply to our lives, how does it apply to yoga, how does it apply to being a part of a yoga community and interacting with other people on the basis of compassion and the values which are associated to it. Also remember that not only doing Vajrasana and meditating on compassion, but also there are specific activities that may increase the feelings and the readiness of one person to practice compassion. Some of these activities may include creating a morning ritual, like some Buddhist sects which are starting the day with a prayer for loving kindness and compassion. Or practicing empathy. We were talking the other day in the Q&A about practicing Samyama. So practicing Samyama is a form of empathy. Just feeling other people with their pleasure and with their pain as well. That's why Kahlil Gibran, when he talks about love, he says love gives you laughter and love gives you tears. And he says, if you don't understand the tears of love, and you just want this levity of laughter, oh, I just want to be happy and laugh and love and so on. But love means tears. Try to think about Virgin Mary crying with Jesus dead in her arms, which is one of the main themes of the Catholic Church, the pieta, describing the piety of the mother who has in her arms her dead son, and the Avatara and the Son of God at the same time, no? that that's still love, and that's a love which purifies and sanctifies. Virgin Mary did not even leave a body behind her. There is no tomb or skeleton of Virgin Mary. There is somewhere near Jerusalem a little monastery where she went, she dematerialized. In front of people. Like Jesus. What practice did she What Vajrasana did she do? Her Vajrasana was this she cried with Jesus in her arms. And that must have hurt terribly. So love brings tears. And Kahlil Gibran says, if you don't want the tears of love, then go away. No, he says, you are incomplete. You are going to laugh, but it's not going to be all your laughter are going to understand, but it's not going to be the complete understanding. He says, you take it, you have to take the full package. That is, therefore, practicing empathy and compassion is not an easy practice. Some people say practice random acts of kindness, it has become very famous at some time in this New Age revolutions of modern times, or creating some evening routines That before you go to bed, you can make a prayer, a devotion, or a thought of compassion. Such as, I have heard that the great masters of Shambhala are compassionate. So, may in my dreams, maybe in one of my dreams, I can go to Shambhala and see what the truly compassionate masters do. What does it consist of? And then we see that, of course, compassion, because it has this mental value, this rational value, it means many, many things. Like somebody is trying to destroy the planet Earth. And then what is compassion for the people from Shambhala? Because the planet Earth means not only 7 billion people who are here to evolve and for whom all this would be taken away. But it also means so many lives of animals, plants, and other the, all the living kingdom is so great that it's very difficult for Shambhala to reach to the conclusion that something can go that way. There is a famous story which all the Shambhala authors quote that in the 1960s or 70s there was a B-52 bomber. Just fell in the water somewhere in the Spanish waters in a place called Palomar or something. And it had atomic weapons on board which were primed for war. They were primed to explode in case they were launched. They were activated. And one when they recovered these atom bombs with submarines later, they discovered that in one of them, six of the explosive heads had gone off. Like that bomb tried to explode six times over. Like it had, I don't know how many detonators. Six of the detonators went off. And still the atomic bomb, which is supposed to be triple military technology, it didn't take off. There was a force, there was something which you can call a coincidence, but there was a force which prevented that nuclear hydrogen bomb to explode although the detonators did their job. No? So Shambhala, then when, when compassion is active, compassion can mean very strong acts in the name of compassion. If somebody wants to pull the trigger, Shambhala, out of compassion, has to stop it. Thus, the concept of compassion is... Uh, if you just have the heart, the heart doesn't have a mind. The heart says, No, whatever, whichever, now, I, I don't care. It has to be, one has to save, and so on. Compassion is rising above that. Compassion, including justice and fairness, and mindfulness, and cause and effect, and the interdependence of all things, then compassion is a very, very high feeling. In yoga, We say that compassion in your aura is linked with one of the most beautiful colors that the human aura can have, which is yellow, the color of the gold, golden yellow. That's the color which you see around the halo of the heads of the saints, that they have nimbuses, which are golden yellow in color, painted in gold. The Buddhas in Tibet and many Buddhist countries are made of gold, or at least covered with a gold layer with a gold leaf and It's not a coincidence that both for Buddhas and Christian saints and so many others, this colour is mentioned it's a colour of compassion when you will disc- when you take into account which is one of the highest vibrations, one of the highest states, one of the highest emotions that one can have in the aura that is the golden yellow, which is related to compassion. I remember many, many years ago having read with fun the primary life story of Lopsang Rampa, and he described his surgery for opening, for helping him for increasing the third eye vision. And he described, he said he was so terrified Because when he saw auras, he saw the auras of two or three high Tibetan lamas who were his gurus. And he always saw gold and yellow and he thought, and then one day he saw a lower rank monk who was just sweeping the floor through the monastery. And he got petrified because the aura of that man was brownish, grayish in color and it He he was completely, then he understood how different the aura of the human beings can be and how much the noble feelings can influence one's being. That's why compassion is one of the top feelings, one of the highest emotions that the human being can have. Together with Ishvara Pranidhana. The longing for God, the surrender to God, compassion is one of the most beautiful places, so to speak, psychologically, to live into. And that's why I can, I can advise, a lot of influence of this comes from Buddhism again. I can advise that besides the love which we advise from the message of Jesus, besides All the other noble feelings that we describe in the chakras do not lose out of your perspective the thought of kindliness, loving kindness, goodwill and ultimately the message of compassion. With this I have finished this excursion through the message of the Buddha concerning compassion. Thank you all for joining us tonight and I will see you in the coming Q&As and such. So